the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Jesse Gastan. He's the host of Way of Grace, a pastor and a community leader. He's a teacher and an inspiration. He's Lifeline's own Jesse Gastan. And I want to welcome you to another Monday edition of Lifeline. So glad to be with you on this Monday. You can join me. The number is one 367 for a live call-in dialogue conversation. Of course, you can give me your questions. You can uh, make observations. We can try to build with a conversation for the next two hours, if you will, while we are on lockdown. Your host, Jesse Gistin, for this edition of Lifeline. Again, the number is one 367 Thanks for joining me from all the Bay Area. Thanks for joining me all over Northern California. And I know that a number of you across the state and on the Internet have chosen to join us at this time. So I'm glad to have you. Just so glad to have you. We're doing well here in the Bay Area. We're doing all right. Uh, we're one of those states that um, well, we have a governor that's uh, pressing very seriously, making sure that we're the shelter principles and uh, the the fair distance uh, um, that we are called to do. You know, just kind of keep your distance. All that stuff going on and. And uh, just just kind of interesting. It's our third weekend, maybe our fourth, but I feel like it's our third weekend to this particular crisis. And um, uh, we're adjusting, aren't we? We are uh, balancing out. We are learning some things about ourselves, good and, and bad. I'm I'm pretty sure. And I, you know, definitely don't mind taking that topic up. We had a number of you who called last week, didn't get a chance to get in. We were raising the question, and we want to continue to work that one through. As a child of God, when life changes, when um, when when things occur that uh, we are um, you know not used to, then uh, then we we want to be able to um, we want to be able to respond to them and uh, make sure that we are. Um, of walking, if you will, in the will of God, making sure that we were grounded in the first place. And so, yeah, that's that's what we want to do. One triple eight three six seven five three two nine. I know for me, one of the things that I, I did early on my resolve was to make sure that I didn't get lazy or that I didn't get um, uh, kind of take this as an opportunity for vacation. I didn't I didn't take my eyes off the prize. And that was by the grace of God. I wanted to make sure that I learned from this particular biological and uh, uh, sociological challenge that we're having that I would 
I would learn quickly what would be the ideal behavior response and therefore practice of the believer during these kinds of times. Because as I've stated to my own congregation, and I'll be able to chat with you guys in a moment of, of our agenda, we'd love for you to be a part of it. As I've stated with my own congregation, it's very important that we understand what's going on from God's standpoint, not just simply look for an opportunity to um, vacate or uh, depart from the priority of a walk that basically is missional every day, no matter what we're going through. It doesn't matter what our, our, our day consists of in terms of what the mystery of life would bring to it or what uh, structured providence would bring to it. We're still called to be missional. We're still, still called to walk in certain priorities of behavior and perspective and therefore opportunity. And so, yeah, that's that's where I'm at. A um, couple things I'll, I'll chat with you about. And uh, definitely, I'd love to hear from you. I've got, I've got two lines open now, one 888 If you've heard of something, if there's some, uh, you know, some information or some, some data that you have come across that you think would be worthy of our conversation, sure, one 888 with um with two lines open uh, for that. I do want to say for those of you who are avid worshipers and uh, the people of God who understand the importance of gathering together with the saints of God. And therefore, you know, when we were disrupted by this particular affliction, our, our world changed in terms of being able to gather together as the people of God. I talked about that two weeks ago. When Hebrews chapter 10, 25 was given, the apostle that wrote the epistle of the Hebrews to the Hebrew people were warning them of a gradual disintegration of zeal for gathering together and worshiping with the people of God. He said, forsake not, that was an imperative, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together um, uh, as much as you see uh, a number of people starting to dissipate that that zealous practice in the early church. The saints were gathering together every day. You can read this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter two through five. And they uh, went from house to house, uh, breaking bread, that is uh, engaging in a meal, uh, adhering to apostolic doctrine, that is sitting under the uh, teaching of the Word of God concerning Christ, that's apostolic doctrine, is a Christ-centered doctrine, and uh, in prayer. So they engaged in that trifecta of uh, fellowship, uh, exposition of the Word, which is the heart of fellowship around God and His Spirit and the Son, uh, the Lord Jesus, and then uh, prayer. They engaged in that every day. Uh, and uh, only, you know, several centuries later, once the church was fairly established in the world, did we basically uh, succumb to a larger uh, once a week gathering. Uh, and uh, some did it on the Sabbath or Saturday, Old Testament Sabbath, uh, in uh, strict uh, conformity with, with Jewish law. And others did it on the first day of the week fully understanding the freedom that we have in Christ to determine the day upon which we would celebrate the reality of the resurrection of Christ. Um, very critical critical question around what day do we worship. I've dealt with that many, many times. I'm going to be dealing with it again tomorrow night in our Tuesday Bible study. We have a study, if you guys don't know, live stream Bible study. Lots of people attend um, at 6.30 on Tuesday, 6.30 on Wednesday, and then 6.30 on Friday. 
So I kind of toss that news out to you now before we uh, go uh, to to the phone lines. And that is that um, uh, this coming Tuesday, we will have a Bible study. It's going to be good. We're in the book of Revelation. I'll start with an introduction around what the four horsemen of the apocalypse are all about relative to that first set of seal judgments the seven seal judgments of Revelation chapter 6 through 8. And uh, during that time, I'm going to explain a couple of uh, uh, verses that we have been working with over the last couple of weeks in the book of Revelation. And one question came up as I was dealing with understanding the symbolic nature of numbers as primarily are utilized in the book of Revelation, but also throughout the word of God. We landed on the number seven and recognized that the number seven is a prominent number of perfection on the part of God relative to his aim and, and uh, an ultimate expression when it comes to his character and nature. And what we have clearly seen is that God created the heavens and the earth as a framework and pattern for his covenant people. He didn't just create it. He created it for his glory but for his glory to be manifested through his covenant people, of which his covenant people would reflect him by working six days, righteous work for six days, and then a righteous rest on the seventh day. And as we worked through some of those numbers, we discovered that um, six days shall a man labor, and on the seventh day he shall rest in reflection of God's creating the heavens and the earth, and then exercising a divine sabbat. On the seventh day, um, I got a number of questions around whether or not we should be still worshiping on that seventh day Sabbath. The answer is absolutely not. Not if you are in Christ, not if you understand the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, not if you understand the essential redemptive reality of which the New Testament and the new covenant promises, which is rest in Jesus Christ and therefore freedom from what was completely impossible for the Jewish people to keep then or now, and that is the Old Covenant, and particularly the Sabbath. The book of Revelation, by inference, in a major portion of its judgments, are a judgment upon national Israel when you properly interpret the book of Revelation, uh, in part, because of their continued rebellion against God, which God indicted them for over and over in the Old Testament for not keeping the Sabbath day holy. And uh, the uh, Gentile believers, Gentile churches today, under a recognition of the coherence between Old and New Testament and the necessity of loving God morally and, and uh, religiously and, and ceremonially, to what extent that might apply, are often uh, befuddled by the conflict around uh, the question of which day is the day to worship. And yes, yeah, so I'm going to be developing that tomorrow in the 630 Bible study um, because there is no particular day. There is absolutely no particular day. Once the New Testament entered into a practical function with the Lord Jesus at the head of the universe, the worship of the people of God was free to be observed every day or one day or any number of days as Romans 14 so clearly lays it out. We are not up under a legalistic mandate with the threat of death as to what day we should worship. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm setting that forth because when you deal with the book of Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ, you have many schools of thought that will come at that book with an eschatological framework, with a desire to 
take the text of the book of the Revelation and force it into their own schools of thought relative to um, what the meaning of the book of Revelation is and what the end times are supposed to look like and how they are to play out. I could give you a number, number of them. There is a Catholic eschatology framework. There is a Seventh-day Adventist eschatology framework. There is a Jehovah Witness eschatology framework. Certainly there is a evangelical eschatology framework, which is largely the one that's held by our present day uh, evangelicals as a premillennial dispensational framework, but it is largely a neo-Jewish framework, quite frankly. And when you understand the different frameworks coming at the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, you can see why people have different uh, interpretations, particularly about the second advent and coming of Christ. So that's what we're going to be dealing with over the next several weeks as well. But I'm going to be touching on the concept of the Sabbath. I do want to say on Friday, we're going to have what we call Calvary night. 630, there will be a a full-fledged presentation by our worship team, by our uh, audio team, and I will be bringing a message that I do every year on the Friday, of which we observe uh, the uh, year of our Lord's crucifixion, which I adamantly believe was AD 33 in April, uh, in observance of the uh, Feast of Passover in AD 33, with a number of arguments to build on that, though others hold different arguments. And then he rose again on the third day, which we learned last week, the third day in that context was the first day of the week. Um, Friday, he was crucified, laid in the ground. Friday evening, becoming the Sabbath, he rested. On Sunday morning, early Sunday morning, he rolls with all power and authority in his hand. And that first day of the week became a pattern down the line for the local churches that were largely Gentile, but some Jews were able to walk in that freedom when they recognized the confusion that was occurring with Gentiles trying to worship on the Sabbath at the same time that the Jews were still worshiping an old covenant system. It just created a lot of problems. So being free to worship on the first day of the week um, was what the Christian church had an opportunity to do. And of course, later on in the fourth century, uh, Constantine tried to make it a law, but he was just a Roman emperor. He, he didn't have any kind of universal sovereignty. So be careful not to collapse into the argument that first day of the week is a kind of sign of the Antichrist. But I'll be dealing with that as well. Do want to encourage you to join us on Friday for this reason. If you don't have a local church, um, or you can't gather with your local church on this Friday, we're going to be observing the table, the Lord's table, uh, the bread and wine from our homes. And we would love for you to join us as well. If you, uh, if you, uh, are feel so free to do so, uh, if the message ministers to your heart, we will observe the table on Friday evening. And then we will observe the table again on Saturday our Sunday morning, rather, that Sunday morning as we deal with the glorious reality of the resurrection of Jesus, by which we are all who are believers in Christ, called new creatures. If any man be in Christ Jesus, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away, and I really mean a bunch of old things. So we need to be careful not to collapse back into old things. Behold, all things have become new. 
And so we have to walk in the newness of life, which is implied on a large spectrum of theological and covenantal truth that will help us maintain a consistency, if you will, with, uh, with what it means to be a biblical Christian in these New Testament times. All right, I've got two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Two lines open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Going to take a break. We will pay some bills. When I come back, we'll pick up your calls and continue our conversation about what's going on in our coronavirus world on this Monday edition. You're listening to Jesse Gistan. This is Lifeline. We will be right back. 555-1509. Lou will make sure the scales are tipped in your favor. Call 800-555-1509. Big Lou will answer your call and work to fit you into a term life policy that you can afford. Remember, Big Lou's like you. He's on meds, too. Call 800-555-1509. 800-555-1509. And now, back to Lifeline. And we are back at the time, 529 on the Monday edition of Lifeline. Glad to have you with us. If you just joined us, we're just kind of um, building our conversation right now. We do have a couple lines open. If you want to join us, one 367 Before we went to the break, I was simply inviting people who are listening to KFAX and yet don't necessarily have a church home or... Um, you're just, you're, you're trying to take advantage of, uh, uh, getting spiritually nourished and spiritually stimulated via live stream. Like a lot of people are doing across the nation and around the world. Quite frankly, um, we have seen a definite spike in the number of people who have joined us. Uh, a lot of old friends, which are great and a lot of new people as well. And uh, me, me and a number of pastors see the wisdom and providence in this. This is one of the good things, I would say, that come out of it. So I'm going to be asking you a couple questions. Again, uh, what, what are some of the good things that have come out of it? We talked about that last week. What might be some of the liabilities as well of a prolonged uh, uh, shelter for cover situation, a prolonged quarantine state? What would be uh, the long-term harm of that for all of us uh, nationally and globally. Uh, and, and in the meanwhile, you know, are, you know, how are you handling and working through the reality of such a transition of a, of a way of life? For some people, this is hard, meaning that they are so very much in need of physical contact with people in order to thrive, in order to feel grounded, in order to have a, a sense of being and purpose that um, this time is a real threat for them. This is truly the case for teenagers. For young people, this is a real challenge. That's what the stats are saying, particularly when it comes to college students. I have an article that I have in front of me called College Students Fight Spiritual Stagnation at Home. Notice what it says. I quote, now that it feels like the entire country is on house arrest, and every large public institution has been shut down. Most college students are back home with their families waiting out the COVID-19 virus. For many, this is a good or even great thing as they love the extra time with parents and siblings. Plenty of others, though, are locked in an environment of familial coldness, 
bickering, emotional isolation, and even hostility to their faith. And I want to kind of put that out there because I, I do know of some really good um, outcomes where families are doing well. But some families probably are struggling with familial coldness, bickering, emotional isolation, or even hostility to the faith. How are students supposed to spiritually grow in an environment that can be the polar opposite of what they experience on campus? Here are four tips from someone who has walked the path before you. Now, the author is going to talk about how young people who are college students who really have to kind of cram through computers, and this might be true for high school to students as well, who are basically giving, uh, you know, electronic books uh, from their teachers so that they can do uh, their homework online and, and, and interact with the teacher via Skype and, and Zoom and other methods. One, he says, don't revert to your less mature high school self. Don't collapse into behavior patterns that are attitudinally or practically unhelpful. Secondly, stay connected as much as you are able to. Well, that shouldn't be a problem because most people today are connected virtually 24 hours via texting. So that shouldn't be a problem. But for some people, that can be a struggle. Thirdly, keep a schedule. Now, I like that. That's really important. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said you really want to be missional about your life. Number four, look at your home as a time on the mission field. That is amazing. What does he mean by that? Many of you as students have siblings or parents who aren't fellow believers in Christ, and that can be extremely difficult <clears throat> for multiple reasons. They knew you growing up and have seen you at your worst. They know how to push your buttons and make you angry. They fed you, rocked you to sleep, changed your diaper, and put you in time out for bad behavior. All of that is pretty humbling when we think about trying to proactively have a spiritual influence on them. Yet, if you look to the uncommon time at home as the specific place God has you in as a missionary on the mission field, that perspective can change much of your better and for much. Uh, that, that perspective can change much for your better and for his glory. For example... Probably no one is better equipped than you to share the gospel with your siblings and parents. Just as much as they know your history, you know theirs too. Ask your brother if he, if he uh, has thought about spiritual stuff in light of that. Uh, and then comment, uh, uh, comment uh, let me say that again. Ask your, ask your brother if he's thought about spiritual stuff in light of that comment your uncle made at Thanksgiving. I guess that's the way the guy wanted to frame that. <laughs> Ask your mom if she's pondered what happened when someone dies in light of grandpa's heart attack three years ago. How did your sister process love and relationships after her boyfriend broke up with her? I guess he's just saying contextualize events that you know occurred in their life and see if you can open up the door for the gospel. I, I think that's pretty good. In other words, I think we should be proactive. We should be laboring to the end that we can be a blessing to people. But if you're struggling with that time, I'm open. one 367 If you're struggling with how to engage the kids, uh, we can talk about that, too. If you're struggling with how to go and, you know, how to set boundaries in terms of uh, getting exercise, uh, but not doing too much. Because, you know, you can go to a lot of places and there are a lot of people there. Last thing you and I want to do is be so free as to end up getting sick. We don't want that. So I think it's a balance that has to be struck. Anyhow, I do have one line open, one 367 1-888-367-5329. Love to hear from you. 
All right, we're going to go to line one and talk with Jermaine from Alameda. Jermaine, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. Hey, what's going on, bro? Uh, not much. Just, um, I guess I had a question I was just curious about. Um, I was kind of taking a look at the recent research that's come out about this virus, and I, I was a big friend. I'm kind of a closet nerd, so right. I, was, uh, I was a fan of Francis Collins and the Human Genome Project. And there's this whole theory going back and forth of whether or not this is something biological or not. I have my thoughts, but I do find it interesting how the, the virus popped up where the Wuhan Virology Lab is. Right. And I was just thinking about, you know, the wonder of God's creation is what made me love science. Like the more it's discovered, the more it just verifies for me how, how great God is. But I was thinking about Genesis and the Tower of Babel. It just seems like human beings, when they discover something, they tend to be fascinated and then they want to weaponize it. And I'm just kind of wondering, like, you know, I've seen in India they're using uh, chili grenades, actually, with, with chili peppers. And, you know, we find out about the atom and then we split it and create weapons of mass destruction. At what point is it too far peering into God's creation? Like, at what point does it become sin where you go from fascination the crossing over to, hey, that's too much. Because at times I just don't know. Like, at what point are you crossing a line? Is I guess what I want to ask. Yeah, um, the I, I would actually put these in in a number uh, number of different brackets or categories. First, if we can affirm that what we're dealing with is a biological aberration, which is a consequence of human error. Um, in the first kind of uh, context, then we can work with that. And, and you know how I am. I, I don't really embrace conspiracy theories or um, unfounded assumptions that don't really have their basis in, in facts. I just, you know, that, that's just been a problem for me. So what I do is I understand a couple things. I understand that it can be purely a natural phenomena that is operating within the context of a sinful world, uh, uh, number one, meaning as as wonderful as God's creation is, as you and I know, Jermaine, is phenomenal, and and a wise heart and a wise head would drink deeply from the uh, well of grace in learning uh, every aspect of our our world, the epistemological uh, uh, development of the believer in comprehending the universe, for him or her to be able to have a worldview that says God did it from the standpoint of magnificent, impeccable intelligence and the infinitude of his his own self-consciousness, um, and, and therefore it's reflected in the creation. The, the scriptures are, are, you know, voluminous for me. Psalm 19, uh, Psalm 119, uh, Romans chapter 1 is a, a massive text some up Isaiah chapter 40 and others quoting about the greatness of God and the greatness of creation. Uh, Romans chapter one would tell us as you, as you already know, in verse, uh, verse 20 for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made. And I've said this before, God made the world, the universe for us to see him and therefore, when we discover the the profundity of the complexity of the universe down to um, what they're calling quarks now, I think that's the word for uh, subatomic particles going beyond the proton, going beyond 
the cell structures, as you, as you know, and and the intelligence that lies within every every um, every element of the creation. We, we come to understand that God was exquisite, that God was all wise, that God was also all loving in making the universe the way he did and then making our solar system so absolutely accommodable of our very existence that we, we just don't, we won't render a conclusion that says that was up to chance. And then when we get into the, um, the reality that uh, biblical revelation has said that sin has entered into our universe, and so our universe is fractured by the fall. Um, Romans chapter 8, the whole creation groans and travails. So not only do I see the beauty and splendor of what God made, I see the groaning and travailing of what man broke in what God made, being the chief steward of God's creation and rebelling against him, so that while we still see a phenomenal amount of absolute wonder and uh, amazement in terms of the uh, you know irreducible complexity of uh, uh, of of the smallest cell structure in the universe is just filled with with uh, intelligence. Uh, we also see brokenness, and what that means is um, mankind is moving in on this planet. He's doing things, and sin is present. And that sin is not only you know let's say a uh, 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 moral. And uh, and therefore social, where we just do things that are evil and uh, and and we hurt one another. But that sin is also, as I stated, it's also biological, uh, and therefore physical. So let's say with the coronavirus, the assumption has been uh, already asserted that um, the coronavirus having its, its original existence in animals that could live perfectly fine with with the with the with the corona. Uh, with the coronavirus itself, but when you mix several animals together, animals that can live with it, animals that cannot, in in societies where we are, you know, basically marketing animals in order to use them for our own consumption, which is one of the uh, arguments being made about the coronavirus being originally, you know, uh, able to live within bats and a few other animals. But when they all get together working in a kind of collage of animals being in the same cage or in the same field, well, viruses can jump from one animal to another animal. And while they may live fine on the animals, when we eat the food of the animals that the viruses are in, Boom, there you go. There's an outbreak that can occur because our bodies cannot actually take in those viruses. We're also moving into, in this dialogue, Jermaine, a, a kind of very important uh, fundamental understanding of the difference between operating uh, with boundaries that would be uh, quasi-kosher, um, uh, respecting the difference between animals so that what we eat, we will know uh, is healthy for us versus eating things that are kind of a hodgepodge and admixture out of necessity or out of greed. And this is one of the principles that the Old Testament did teach us about the nation of Israel. In order for God to get Israel from Egypt to Canaan uh, without them dying of diseases, he had to quarantine certain things that they could eat and not eat, as you would know, in order to minimize their diet and uh, maximize the efficiency of how they ate and what they ate and when they ate so that they could stay healthy all the way through because he knew that they were going into a foreign land filled with people with all kinds of other different, you know, uh, biological uh, structures to, uh, so that the what one person, what one ethnic group can 
can uh, survive with in terms of, you know, they can they can handle certain sociological uh, adjusted uh, viruses and uh, diseases or, if you will, um, uh, things by which they they are identified with. They can they can eat their own food. You and I eat some of their food and we'll get sick and if not die. And so God knew that with the nation of Israel. So bringing them into the land of Canaan required uh required him teaching them dietary laws and food laws that would balance out and minimize the capacity for them to succumb to something that uh, you and I are aware of now with the coronavirus is, you know, this is this is not a new virus. This virus goes back two and three uh, different types of uh, uh, viruses. And so they share some some common traits. But the problem is, is that it, it got uh, transferred and manufactured through a mass production of food that went into a culture being uh, the uh, Chinese culture where, you know, they probably just didn't care about levels of cleanliness. This also tells me, quite frankly, that every day that you and I eat food that, you know, is uh, being taken, uh, you know, uh, being handled by other people, we definitely want to be prayerful and thoughtful about it, not collapse into fear and anxiety, because I don't. With prayer uh, and thanksgiving, you know, we, we ask God to bless the food, and we believe that he does, so for the most part, we're healthy, but every now and then, we get food poisoning. I got food poisoning about two months ago. Man, I, I it was horrible, and uh, I haven't eaten from that particular place that I know I got it from uh, yet, and yet I don't believe that they are just intentionally doing it, but it happens from time to time. So for me, I'm looking at this not so much as... Uh, a conspiracy on the part of a group of maniacal people that want to create a, a pandemic and, 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 and cause a, a million people to die. But at the same time, I know what we're dealing with is, uh, is spiritual principalities and powers that don't care about human beings enough to where if there's a collateral damage outcome from them being hyper uh, capitalistic or, or whatever the case may be, here's the outbreak. And God will use that to uh, he'll use that to get our attention and uh, and humble us, no matter what theories people would would embrace with that. So I know that was a long commentary, but people have asked me this over and over and over again, and I thought I'd share that with you. What's your thoughts? So yeah, I think you had the most coherent answer I've heard, and I I personally don't buy into a lot of conspiracies. I just I, I take a wait and see approach because every now yeah. and then people will surprise you. But yeah, I just I do kind of wonder though. At times, it's like, it, where do we know that boundary is and isn't? Right. Like, it's, right. it's fascinating to see God's creation. And I also take the point of view that we, we've we only been told in schools that we've explored our planet and we've explored the ocean. When come to find out, we we don't know half of what we thought we know about our planet. So exactly. the thing is, just like you said, there's there are boundaries within certain animal kingdoms and Humans being who they are, they're going to try and find a way to exploit that and, and maybe cross over and doing something you, you were never intended to do, and, and then stuff happens. So, you know, I don't think uh, there's some cabal of Illuminati people trying to destroy the whole planet because God's ultimately in control anyway. So, yeah, yeah I, I think you had the best answer I've heard. Right. I appreciate that. I'm going to take a take a break, but I do really want to expand on that a little bit just to to really anchor us in, particularly living in a world where where we don't really want to hold to 
a biblical epistemology or a biblical um, uh, understanding of how to deal with these kind of things. Thanks for the call. Got to take a break, pay some bills. Two lines open, one 367 5329 one Great question. We'll be right back. And now back to Lifeline. All right, we are back. One line open, one triple eight three six seven five three two nine. Let me go to line number two and talk with Ken from San Jose. Ken, are you there? Hello, Pastor Gastan. Um, How are you? You're you're live streaming these these Bible classes. I assume um, your services also is that correct? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, the problem I'm having with a thing like that is number one, <laughs> I don't have a personal computer. Number two, my church doesn't have a live streaming capacity. But even beyond that, even if you can, you know, get that kind of thing going from household to household, you um, you can't even bring other people in very well because you, there's a problem with social distancing. So what do you think about something like um, uh, having a uh, service outdoors or in a parking lot with people in cars and, you know, big speakers and transmitting things that way where at least be some kind of interaction and at least a, an approximation of a gathering? Um, I'll back up to the first one and challenge your assumption on the first one, and I will affirm your second one as a definite possible option, particularly as we move forward. And, you know, if this government keeps pressing down this this new normal, that second option is going to be something you see people doing a lot more, particularly, uh, you know, in, in, in fairly accommodable weather like we have in the Bay Area. But going back to the first one, if you have a cell phone, a smartphone, you're, you're on, you're in. You don't need a computer. Secondly, um, you can do what a lot of people are doing, Ken, and I didn't notice until I had a conversation with another pastor yesterday as to why our numbers uh, for people watching us live stream jumped into the thousands. Um, and that's because what people are doing is they are sharing with other people to join them in watching the program. And so they're still witnessing. They're still evangelizing. They're still encouraging loved ones. And here I'll tell you guys what I love about this. And I want to push this a little bit because I see the wisdom in what God has allowed to us to do who want to be faithful to the word of God in spite of his left hand of discipline upon our world through this coronavirus. Um, he, for the most part, most of us have phones that uh, are connected to the internet. There will be a handful of people who don't, as there are a handful of people who don't want to, as there are a handful of older people who, uh, who just have not moved into that part of our century. We get that. But the overwhelming uh, majority of people in our world can um, are uh, cell, uh, cell phone savvy and they can easily uh, get the application like our Grace, uh, Grace Bible Church application or app. They call it app, A-P-P. It's so easy to download. Just go to grace-bible.com or go to Grace Application or even call the office because I'm not one of those super tech guys. But you can so quickly and so easily download our messages uh, with, with the Grace app and then you're on. And then, you know, what people are doing is just passing on that simple information, too. And people who do use their phones for basically everything, and we all use our phones for a lot of things, will have a bunch of applications on the front of their phone. Uh, and as such, they know how to text people and say, hey, 
We're joining PJ at 6.30 on Tuesday. He's in the book of Revelation. He's starting to do an introduction on the on the seven seals and, and therefore talking about the biblical, you know, interpretation of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And uh, lo and behold, a couple things come out of it, Ken, that I've learned. I haven't even thought it through. A lot of people are, are pro-anonymous, pro-anonymous, meaning they like their anonymity. They love the fact that they can listen or watch or observe in the privacy of their own space. That does become an added benefit for the cause of the gospel. Um, it's not ideal. It's, it's, uh, it's something that um, is, uh, we have to accommodate. But at this particular time, it makes sense that we would push and encourage. And the young people are doing it. I didn't even have any idea what people were doing. But because people are so engaged on social media, hey, PJ is on 630. And the next thing I know, uh, you know, our website is blowing up. Our Facebook is blowing up. And uh, you just that stuff is is getting big. And we found that they're trending They're They're continuing with it. And so there, you know, you, those there are a ton of upsides on that regard. However, when you're talking about wanting to have a little bit of tangible fellowship with, with people, even if it's maintaining the social distance of being in cars, I like it. I totally like it. Before this uh, virus hit to the degree that it did, we told our congregation that we would still be gathering because our facility is big enough for us to have 250 people in it and maintain the social distancing uh, standard. Um, and so we were going to have two services where the first group would come in and, you know, be distanced about six feet in, uh, in, in diameter. And then the second group would come in and uh, we were going to do it that way until the governor shut it down to a handful of people. Um, but we also talked about once the weather is good and, 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 and fine, man, we, we have a big open field. We've got hundreds of uh, thousands of square feet back there where we are, and we would just set up chairs and and have people meet outside. And the idea of uh, doing what you're doing, I talked with a pastor yesterday about it. That's exactly what he said he wanted to do, because uh, he has a big open lot as well that he would have the members drive in. And they all got cell phones, as you said, so they can they can uh, either listen online, which I'm telling you they will do, even if you put big speakers out there. Because, you know, it depends on how many cars there are. If you have a, a number of cars parked somewhere and um, and you got speaker systems set up, you're probably going to invite some conflict with the law. You're probably going to invite, depending on how many cars there are and how, how there's space, you're probably going to invite some problem with the law. Not that I really care about that. I'll be honest with you. I don't particularly care about the law coming and looking to see whether or not we're keeping the social distancing rule. Uh, but they can be harassing. There's a there's a fact that that's what's going on around the world. Police are harassing the gathering of the people of God, for sure. There's no doubt about that. But I like uh, your second idea. Um, is that something that you're looking forward to doing? Well, I'm going to suggest it to my church. Um, I have just begun to think along those lines. I saw something on television about it. Okay. I don't have the, uh, as far as the first alternative, I don't have a, and I have an old-fashioned phone, so you know I'm sort of in the old oldster category with that. But anyway, got it, got it, got it. We, a lot of us just like the gathering, and it's just uh, uh, we lose a lot through interaction, no matter what, how you structure the 
you know, the, the uh, individual, you know, live stream capacity is still lose a lot. So oh, you do, I'm, I'm you do. Churches will be more active about that. No, no, no. You're 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 right. Don't get me wrong. You're you're right. Um, we all are bemoaning the fact that we can't you know, physically be in each other's presence. I don't want to play that down for a moment. Um, I, I, yeah, definitely don't want to do that. And and I think, like like you're saying, you're probably prescient. I, I think um, as soon as our weather lets up, we've got a typical April month here with, with rain and stuff. But I, I just got a feeling, Ken, if, if this pushes into May, like they're talking about it doing, and even in June, you're going to see more of that, more uh, innovation, ways by which people can gather together. I, me and my wife were walking through Chabot Park um, uh, a couple weeks ago, and I was looking at the, you know, just all those open benches with nobody on them. I was thinking, you know what? Uh, you know, we could we could do groups of people. We They don't have to be as, as large as our congregation. You can do 20 people in groups and, and have them spread out over park benches and, uh, and, 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 you know, and fellowship. Somebody could you know, talk through a small, um, uh, you know, sp- small speaker that 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 would operate within in range, and we could have fellowship. I I, I truly believe that what you're saying will actually occur. I, I just know it because we we have an overwhelming need for physical presence with each other. So uh, be of good courage. You probably will be calling me in in a couple, two or three weeks or a month, and we'll probably be having that conversation. So listen, man, thanks for the call. Um, I got to take a break. Uh, three lines open, one 888 367 I'll be right back. 